Hello, and welcome to Grand Final History. I'm Kieran McGee, and in this episode, we go back to 1905. The VFL's ninth season, 1905, is also known as Albert Einstein's Year of Miracles, when he published four landmark scientific papers that revolutionised the way we see the universe, proved the existence of atoms, outlined special relativity, gave the world the famous E equals MC squared equation, and, eventually, the phrase used about many footballers, including Jack Dyer, He's no Einstein, but he can play a bit. 1905 was Einstein's miracle year. Let's see if any of the clubs have a miracle to take out the premiership. Preparations for the season began in March, when the league administration met. Items on the agenda included a donation to the Queensland Australian Rules League, which set the precedent for the league's eventual investments in supporting the Brisbane Bears, the Brisbane Lions and the Gold Coast Suns. Jack Worrell also raised the need to negotiate with the cricket authorities to gain access to the grounds before May. Fitzroy's delegate, Con Hickey, agreed, pointing out that they had to travel to the wilds of Northcote and Preston, looking for practice grounds. I'm sure those early administrators would be pleased to know that the football clubs now dominate access to the grounds, with cricket clubs sent off packing and the cricket season having to fit around the football season. The fixture was released at the end of March. No agreement with the South Australian Football Association meant that there would be no interstate games this season. Instead, there would be two buys, allowing for games against the combined Ballarat team at the MCG in June and a return game in Ballarat in August. The league annual general meeting was held at the start of April, with the season still a month away. There was talk of another game in Sydney. However, this would end up being an exhibition game between South Melbourne and Fitzroy. There was also positive talk about the growth of the game internationally with reports from New Zealand, South Africa and Canada. And to help the game locally, the VFL proposed the formation of an Australian Football Council with invitations to various state associations and leagues for a gathering in Melbourne at the start of November, coincidentally the same time as the Melbourne Cup. The issue of professionalism and the hidden payment of players was still bubbling along. In April, the Melbourne leaders, old boy, analysed the financial reports produced by the clubs and wondered at the cost of providing uniforms and boots when the players that originally made the game provided their own boots and uniforms and played for the fun they got for it. Sadly, in 1905, the player today is a pampered individual who must be waited on and whose every wish must be gratified at the expense of the club or some ardent supporters. So if you think that today's players are soft and are looked after too well... You're maintaining a tradition that dates back over 100 years. In the Melbourne Leader, Javelin reported that Amos Norcott, Melbourne's secretary, had proposed that the club's financial statements should be independently audited by the VFL. This would provide evidence where the clubs were paying players and using dodgy accounts to hide payments. Melbourne were very committed to amateurism, so clearly had nothing to hide in their books. The challenge of professional payments was going to come to a head in the coming seasons, but it would be many, many years before the introduction of the salary cap and for the league to get full access to the club's financial records. The ninth VFL season opened on the Saturday, 6th of May, 1905. Across multiple press articles, the common message was that the game was growing in popularity and improving in the quality of play, with new talent replacing the players that had retired from the previous season. Fitzroy had built a new grandstand at their Brunswick Street Oval to provide state-of-the-art facilities for spectators and players 
with new change rooms and gym rooms for the club's players. In a move sure to cause confusion, the VFA team, Essendon Town, decided to rebrand themselves as Essendon, claiming to be the true club for the suburb that actually played their home games in Essendon at Windy Hill. The VFL Essendon team would continue to play at the East Melbourne Cricket Ground near the Jollymont train station until its closure in 1921. Ironically, when Essendon moved its home games to the MCG in 1992, they were moving their home games back to the suburb where they had started in the VFL. The opening round was played on a hot and sunny day on hard, hard grounds. The match of the day was Fitzroy versus Collingwood. The 1904 Premiership flag was unfurled in front of the players who were shown in the photos of the event as standing around in odd groups and on the ground rather than in some more formal presentation. It was a tough, close game between the bitter suburban rivals and although Fitzroy were on the defensive for much of the final quarter, they held on to win by three points, four goals 10-34 to Collingwood's three goals 13-31. The June Prince of Wales long weekend holiday saw an innovation that would become standard over the years. Rather than force the teams to play on the Saturday and then face up again on the Monday for a two-day turnaround, there was the first split round, with two games on the Saturday and two games on the holiday Monday. There would not be any interstate games this season. The South Australian Football Association was holding out for a better deal financially and the VFL would not agree. So instead, the VFL would play two games against the combined Ballarat team. On the 24th of June, the Victorians hosted the Ballarat team at the MCG and for the first time, the Vicks were wearing the blue jumper, albeit without the big V just yet. On the same day, the South Australian Football Association had actually travelled to Victoria, but this time they would be playing the VFA at the Punt Road Oval. At the MCG, the VFL were far too strong for the Ballarat team, winning 15 goals 20-110 to just 4 goals 5-29. While over at the Punt Road Oval... An inaccurate VFA team lost a close game to the visiting South Australians, 8 goals 14-62, to the VFA's 6 goals 19-55. On the same day, Fitzroy and South Melbourne played an exhibition game in Sydney. It would be another 77 years before South Melbourne would make Sydney their permanent home. The Argus had no time for these efforts to popularise the games up north. In its preview of the game, it wrote, quote, In Sydney... The Fitzroy and South Melbourne teams will continue the hopeless crusade against rugby. They have as much chance of supplanting it, I think, as they have supplanting cricket with croquet. Both games are good in their way, and it is a matter of usage as to which we consider best. I have my opinion, and, leaving our game out of it, it is that the English Association is a better game by a good deal than rugby. I saw rugby played at its best in New Zealand, and witnessed the association final between Tottenham Hotspurs and Sheffield United with 65,000 people watching it at the Crystal Palace in London. And the points for pace and skill were all in favour of the so-called soccer, spelt S-O-C-K-E-R. All the same, I'd look upon New South Wales Crusade as a placement picnic, but nothing more. It would be a miracle if the Australian game were established in Sydney, a misfortune if rugby got a footing in Victoria. Despite the pessimism of the Argus, there was some positive coverage of the Sydney press for their continued experiment. As reported in the Sydney Sportsman, the week before the game, the arrival of South Melbourne meant that every league team, except St Kilda, had visited Sydney at least once. There was also two delightful caricatures of Gerald Brosnan and Bill Windley, the respective captains in Fitzroy and South Melbourne. The preview in the Sydney Morning Herald provided a guide for those not conversant with the rules of the Australian game, 
pointing out that it was designed to be equally attractive to players and spectators alike. At a welcome reception, Mr Albert Nash, the President of the New South Wales Football League, presented a glowing picture of the health of the Australian game. It was played in 48 schools across New South Wales, in every state of the Commonwealth, with 30 clubs in Queensland, 60 in New Zealand, and now being played in South Africa, Canada and England. He was sure it had a great future. On what might have been putting a positive spin on a change in direction, he said that this visit of the two Victorian teams was the last, as the policy now was to get a New South Wales team ready to play the Victorians. Perhaps the VFL teams were getting weary of paying their own way to Sydney every year. The triumph of the Australian game in every state, let alone internationally, could still be considered a work of progress over a 100 years later. The two teams had played the week before at the Brunswick Street Oval, and Fitzroy had won by more than four goals. In Sydney, the game was much closer. Played in front of 8,000 people, far less than the 20,000 of a few years earlier, Fitzroy won the exhibition game by seven points. The hopes of New South Wales supporters were rewarded later in the season, when a New South Wales team did travel to Melbourne to play Victoria. On the 12th of August, there was a bye, and the VFL sent one team up to Ballarat to play the return game against the combined Ballarat team, On this occasion, the locals were the stronger team and defeated the VFL by 20 points, 10 goals 12, 72, to the VFL's 7 goals 10 behinds, 52. On the same day, the New South Wales team took on the VFL at the MCG. There had been numerous functions to welcome the New South Wales team and much hoped that this would be the start of regular games between the states. In his review of the game, Observer noted that interstate games of football don't generate as much interest as regular club games, but there was some curiosity about this match, which was seen as more of an education for the New South Wales team rather than one they had a chance to really win. Despite a slow start, the New South Wales side played some attractive football, there was good straight kicking from both sides, and the Victorians won without really exerting themselves. 12 goals, 18, 90 points to New South Wales, 10 goals, 10, 70. The season progressed, with Collingwood moving to the top of the ladder in a run of wins. One of the lowlights of the season was the challenging condition to round 12 on the 29th of July. Follower in The Age asked, After Saturday's experience, it would be interesting to know what sort of adverse weather would be sufficiently adverse for authorities to put off the matches. Despite the rain and poor conditions, spectators found their way to each of the grounds to watch play that at times degenerated into something of a burlesque. The end of the home and away portion of the season saw Collingwood on top of the ladder with 12 wins and only two losses. Fitzroy, Carlton and Essendon made up the top four as the sectional games commenced. The first week went as expected with the higher ranked teams winning their games. Week two saw the Fitzroy team travel to Corio Oval to play Geelong. In a game that was close all day, Geelong's better accuracy saw them prevail by two points. 10 goals 8-68 to Fitzroy's 9-12-66. Carlton, Essendon and Collingwood all had wins. The final round would decide the order of the top four, with the main game being Essendon hosting Fitzroy. The Maroons had finished the season second, but had been inconsistent in the latter part of the season, with losses to Geelong and a draw against South Melbourne in the final round of the home and away games. However, now that the season was drawing to a close, the reigning premiers began to hit their stride. Essendon were never in the game, with Fitzroy winning 11 goals 14-84 to Essendon's 4-13-37. Collingwood had finished the season well on top of the ladder, three games clear of Fitzroy, and had earned their right of a challenge should they need it. 
The semi-finals on the 16th of September would see topside Collingwood playing third-place Carlton at the MCG and second-placed Fitzroy playing the fourth-place Essendon at Princess Park for the second week in a row. While Fitzroy were favoured to repeat the result, Essendon were strengthened by the return of the three of their regular players. The league had learnt the lesson from last year's grand final and now increased the price of the semi-finals to a shilling as well, double the price of the previous year's semi-final. The reason given for the increase was to cover the costs of promoting the game in the northern states. As would happen many times in the future, the average supporter was paying for the league's ambitions for expansion. Writing in the leader, follower was scathing about the price increase and again argued that the club books should be subject to independent audit to make it clear where the money was really going. The taint of secret professionalism continued to cast its shadow over the league affairs. Regardless of the cost, 14,000 people came to Princess Park to see if the reigning premiers would continue or whether Essendon would improve on the previous week. Gerald Brosnan called the toss correctly and the Maroons had first use of the wind, blowing to the eastern goal. Fitzroy got the first goal of the day when Percy Trotter completed a clever snap. With Trotter and Brosnan scoring goals, the game was looking distinctly one-sided by the end of the quarter, with Fitzroy on five goals one thirty-one to Essendon two points only. Essendon would have been hoping to use the win to get back into the game, but their poor kicking let them down, and they could not stop Fitzroy scoring. At half-time, the score was Fitzroy, 8 goals 2, to Essendon 2-8. The game began to get rougher in the third quarter, and there were instances of deliberate charging on both sides. Fitzroy's Les Sharp ended up in a hard collision with Essendon's Bill Griffiths and had to leave the ground for a while. With no substitutes or interchange, Essendon had the advantage of an extra player. However, it did not make much difference to the way the game was unfolding. At three-quarter time, Fitzroy had moved further ahead with their accurate kicking to 12 goals 4 to 4-8. The final quarter was simply a matter of playing out time to formalise the result that was already clear to everyone. Sadly for Essendon's Michael Madden, he collided with teammate Jack McKenzie just before the end of the game and broke his collarbone. A frustrating way to end the season. When the final bell rang, Fitzroy had an easy win, 12 goals 7 to 4-12, showing the crowd they were in fine form for their premiership defence. Over at the MCG, 14,000 people saw Carlton take on favourites Collingwood. It was expected to be a formality for Collingwood, but Carlton wanted to show that they were not just there to make up numbers, and it would be the Blues that dominated from the start of the game. Carlton won the toss and kicked with the wind in the first quarter. Play was tight for the first 10 minutes, but things then began to go the way of the Blues. Charlie Rowland got the first goal of the day after taking a mark in front of goal. Shortly after, George Topping kicked the ball off the ground to get their second, and then Mick Grace and Jim Flynn also picked up goals to give Carlton a healthy lead at quarter time, four goals three to just one point. Collingwood supporters would have been hoping for a comeback in the second quarter with the win's assistance, but Carlton had worked out a way of busting the Magpie's famous system of fast, accurate passing to a loose player, and they could only add a couple of behinds. Ed Rowan missed an easy chance for their only goal, while at the other end of the ground, George Malley Johnson, playing his first season for Carlton, was awarded a free kick in front of goal and kicked truly. The half-time score was Carlton 5 goals 5, to Collingwood just 3 points. A team that had dominated the season had not kicked a goal in the first two quarters of finals football. There was some slight improvement in the third quarter, with Collingwood adding two goals one, but Carlton had moved further in front by scoring three goals for the quarter. 
with three-quarter time score read eight goals seven to Collingwood's two goals four. The final quarter saw more of the same, with Carlton adding 3-2 to Collingwood at least scoring a couple of goals with the wind. The final score was a convincing win for Carlton, 11 goals 10-76 to 4-6-30. Collingwood supporters could go home safe in the knowledge that they still had the right to challenge for the Premiership. Carlton had the chance to get their revenge on Fitzroy in the following week, and the league would be delighted that there would be an extra game in the season and the crowds kept turning up, even with the increased admission price. Saturday 23rd of September was now effectively the preliminary final between Carlton and Fitzroy, a replay of the 1904 grand final. The winner would have to take on Collingwood in the following week. 26,000 people paid the one shilling price, raising £938, which was the biggest return for a football game ever held in Victoria. The VFL was the big money game of the day. Before the big game, there was a curtain raiser between the primary school champions of New South Wales and Victoria. Petersham, representing New South Wales again, and Clifton Hill for Victoria. The New South Wales boys caused an upset by winning comfortably, a good result for those looking to promote the game in New South Wales. The trip down had been paid for by the league as part of their promotion of the game in Sydney. Carlton were slight favourites, given they had thoroughly beaten ladder leader Collingwood the week before. But Fitzroy were also playing fine football, and they too had plenty of experience in winning big games in September. Carlton started the game off faster than Fitzroy, but poor kicking denied them the full advantage. They kicked three behinds before Fitzroy made a move forward with a goal to Joe Johnson from a snapshot. Carlton then focused the efforts with Mick Grace picking up two goals against his old team and Fred Pompey Elliott also scoring for the Blues as they looked to be taking control of the game. But the Maroons were not going to let things get away and the momentum swung back with quick goals to Les Millis from his running shot that bounced twice before going through, and Bill Walker scoring from a free kick close to close out the first quarter. The game was evenly split, with Carlton on 3-4 and Fitzroy on 3-2. The second quarter was another tight contest, but Fitzroy created some advantage with their better accuracy in front of goal. Hard bumps were frequent, but there was no viciousness in the game, just two determined teams playing at great pace to win. Herbert Milne and Alf Wilkinson scored goals for Fitzroy, and Charles Rowland kicked Carlton's only goal for the quarter. Mick Grace went close, but his shot hit the post. The halftime bell rang to give the players a well-earned rest, with Fitzroy sneaking ahead. Five goals, three, 33, to Carlton, four, six, 30. Fitzroy came out firing at the start of the third quarter. Alf Wilkinson took a place kick from a difficult angle to get his second, and Fitzroy's sixth goal. A series of quick passes down the ground resulted in Alf Wilkinson passing the ball onto Percy Trotter, who got his first goal of the day. Herbert Milne then pushed the lead out further, kicking a second goal. But Carlton were not done for yet. Their centreman, Rob McGregor, in his first season of VFL football, managed to dribble the ball through for their first goal of the quarter. This was followed with goals by Arch Snell and the big man George Malley Johnson to keep the Blues in the game at three-quarter time. Fitzroy were two goals up, eight goals six to six-seven. The Maroons had seemed to have got away to a winning lead, but Carlton had kept themselves in the game. The final quarter would decide who would take on Collingwood for the 1905 Premiership. And the final quarter was where Fitzroy showed they were the stronger team than the Blues. Joe Johnson scored the first goal of the quarter, pushing Fitzroy further ahead. In the final quarter of the 1904 Grand Final, Percy Trotter had broken Carlton's heart and in the 1905 Preliminary Final, he would repeat the dose with a brilliant running goal. 
Skipper Gerald Brosnan then sealed the game with the final goal of the game. Carlton were held goalless in the final quarter. They had tried hard all day, but the superior team had won the victory. 11 goal 6 to 6-9. The grand final was held on Saturday the 30th of September. The price was the same as the year before, one shilling for entry and a shilling extra for the grandstand. Also in these early years, members of the competing team just had to show their membership ticket to enter the game. The field umpire would again be Ivo Crap for his seventh and final grand final. He was the leading umpire of his generation and set the standard for umpires in the newly formed VFL. In 1906, Ivo Crap moved to Western Australia on the promise of a job in the Kalgoorlie goldfields. The job had disappeared by the time he arrived and he returned to Perth intending to catch the train back to Melbourne. Western Australian League officials took advantage of the opportunity to grab the country's leading umpire and put him on contract to umpire Western Australian Football League games for the 1906 season. His umpiring career would continue in the West until 1919. His last major game was at the request of the VFL in the 1921 interstate game between Western Australia and Victoria when he was 48 years old. An astonishing umpiring career. Gerald Brosnan would captain Fitzroy again after the successful season the year before. Collingwood's captain was Charles Panham. From a Greek family, they shortened their name from Pananopolis when they emigrated to Australia. He was a local Collingwood boy who was a brilliant wingman. The first man to play a 100 VFL games. Along with Dick Condon, Charles Panham was instrumental in developing Collingwood's famous fast, accurate style of play, the Collingwood system. By 1905, he had slowed down a little and moved down the forward line. He topped the VFL goal-kicking for the year with 38 goals. He created a Collingwood dynasty with two sons playing for the club and his grandsons were the famous pair of Ron and Lou Richards. Charlie may be a little bit disappointed that Ron Richards' grandson, Ed Richards, ended up playing for the Western Bulldogs. But while the AFL does have a father-son rule, there is no great, great grandfather son option available. The fact that the MCG is the designated ground for grand finals has created some complaints in the modern era, especially from interstate clubs that have had to travel long distances to play in Melbourne on the MCG, even if they have finished higher on the ladder than their opponent. It is not the first time that this issue has been raised. On the eve of the 1905 grand final, the Fitzroy City Press wrote, quote, The present arrangement is a peculiar one and penalises the ground of the successful team. Fitzroy has been in the front rank for some years, and that is largely due to the excellent situation of the ground and the splendid appointments and conveniences, and their success has debarred the team from playing on the ground, penalised the members and the citizens by costing them large sums, in the aggregate, in travelling expenses. To those outside the league executive, it does appear to be a one-sided arrangement. There should be some better method... I'm sure supporters and administrators of clubs outside of Melbourne would agree with these sentiments from over 115 years ago. The Fitzroy City Press felt very confident that the Maroons would beat Collingwood despite having to travel the distance to the MCG as they were feeling sure that the Collingwood would have little scope for their roving system. Also on the Friday before the game, Kikoro in the Herald had his preview of the big game with possibly a more neutral perspective than the Fitzroy Press. Insights shared by Kikoro included details of Herbert Pears, Collingwood's half-forward flanker who would be returning from the Western District where he was shearing sheep for the big game. 
he would drive 40 miles over the Western District Plains to catch the morning train from Geelong to make it to the MCG on time. In other changes to the team, the selectors, looking at the wet conditions, went for bulk rather than for speed, and brought back Matthew Fell, John Insull, and veteran fullback and former captain Bill Proudfoot, despite the fact that neither of these men had been regular players during the season. Four changes before the grand final would seem to be a brave move in any era, but it was felt warranted given the expected poor playing conditions. The players met on Thursday night and were addressed by committee members and leading players Panham and Dick Condon. Each player then criticised the other style of play, pointing out weak spots and suggesting improvements, but everyone accepted the criticism in the proper spirit. Fitzroy took a different strategy. They kept the same team that had dismissed Carlton from the race. Special trains had been arranged from Bendigo, Ballarat and Geelong to bring supporters into the big game. The VFL final had the attention of football supporters in both the city and the country. On Saturday there was more rain in the morning and concern that the harsh conditions that had endured for the season would impact the grand final too. It had been a wet and cold winter but fortunately the morning rain moved on and the sun even came out to help improve the ground. It was in a springy condition and a fine contest was anticipated. The teams had played each other twice during the season for one win each. Despite the morning's rain, the crowd built up to 30,000 people playing over a 1,000 pounds, a record for the league. The first scoring shot was by the experienced Fred Fontaine, but his kick went astray without registering. And after 10 minutes of play, the Fitzroy skipper Gerald Brosnan had a snap and got the first point on the board. It was going to be a tough first quarter. Fitzroy were doing their best to attack, but Collingwood were solid in defence. Their star defender, Alf Dummett, repelling many forward pushes. Fitzroy had manned up on each of the Collingwood players, which limited the Magpies' ability to employ their famous short-passing system. When it was Collingwood's turn to drive forward, Robert Nash was awarded a free kick in front of goals, but he could only score behind. As the quarter drew to a close, Fitzroy's Fred Fontaine had another shot, but again it was a behind. Just before the first quarter, Collingwood was dealt a blow when their champion rover, Dick Condon, injured his knee and took very little part in the remainder of the game. With no interchange or substitutes in the era, Collingwood were effectively down to 17 men. Their famed system was going to suffer with one less player, especially when that player was Dick Condon, one of the inventors of the system of fast passes. The quarter-time scores were Fitzroy, no goals, three behinds, to Collingwood's one behind. In his quarter-time address, Gerald Brosnan told the players they were crowding their forward line too much. The second quarter saw Collingwood move forward first via former Fitzroy player Ed Druin to Robert Strawn, then to a limping Dick Condon. Deep in the Collingwood forward line, Fitzroy's Bill Walker tackled Collingwood's captain Charles Panham, giving away a free kick. Panham's shot at goal went astray, another behind to the score. Despite the low scores, it was a fast-moving game with plenty of vigour. After moves up and down the ground, the Magpies had the ball in their forward line. Collingwood's John Insull passed the ball low and hard to Ed Druin, who marked and took a set shot, but again only scored another behind. The scores were now level, three behinds each, well into the second quarter of the grand final. Fitzroy's fullback Jeff Moriarty kicked out the ball, but it was intercepted by Collingwood's centre-half forward Bob Nash taking a good mark. This time the ball sailed through the big sticks, and the Collingwood had the first goal for the game. The Magpie supporters' cheers deafened the crowd. The pressure was building on Fitzroy. Collingwood with the breeze were just one goal in front, but the Maroons had been defending for most of the quarter. 
With the ball in the middle part of the ground, Fred Fontaine did some clever work to get the ball into Fitzroy's forward line, but Percy Trotter dropped it in front. Collingwood's veteran fullback, policeman Bill Proudfoot, cleared the ball, denying Fitzroy any score. The pressure continued to build and the crowd got louder. In front of the members' pavilion on the wing, Fitzroy's Joe Johnson was awarded a free kick. He booted the ball into the forward line, where Les Millers picked up the ball and kicked Fitzroy's first goal. The bell sounded for half-time with the scores level. One goal, three behinds each. The two top teams from the 1905 season had played half of the grand final and there was nothing separating the two teams. The discussion at half-time favoured Collingwood. Fitzroy had not helped their chances by playing the wrong side of the ground that made defence easier, with the wind trapping the ball against the boundary. As the players returned to the ground, Collingwood's handicap with the injured Dick Condon was balanced out by Fitzroy's staunch defender and high marker, James Sharp, nearly as lame as Condon. James Sharp would actually have a 10-year career with Fitzroy before switching to rivals Collingwood where he played another three seasons. He then became an effective administrator for the club and eventually becoming Collingwood's president. One of the more bizarre incidents of AFL football occurred in 1917 where Collingwood had travelled down to Geelong and was somehow a player short. Sharp agreed to take the field but sadly injured his knee in the opening minutes of the game and had to leave the field. However, he has the unique honour of being the only VFL club president to play a game while in office, something that not even Eddie Maguire could achieve. But that was a still a long way in the future at half-time in 1905, and there was a grand final to be won between the two teams. Collingwood moved forward first after the bounce to restart the game. The defence of both teams were maintaining the ascendancy, and the ball just moved back and forth. There were a couple of long shots to no effect. Herbert Milne moved the ball to young Percy Trotter, who then scored Fitzroy's second goal to give them a six-point lead. And then Fitzroy's Titch Bales got the ball to Fred Fontaine, who marked cleanly. In a remarkable piece of play, Fontaine lined up for a shot at goal, but kicked the ball straight into Arthur Leach, who was standing on the mark. However, Fred Fontaine managed to rush forward, pick up the ball and have a second shot. But sadly, it went astray, and just one point was added to the score. Collingwood pushed the ball into their forward line, and Bob Nash had a shot on the run, but again, there was another point to the Magpie score. It took Fitzroy's Gerald Brosnan to break the runner behinds. He snapped a goal to put the Maroons 14 points up, looking like a significant lead in a low-scoring game. Some fast play and clever passing from the centre bounce by the Maroons Fontaine to Millis to Gilbert Barker, who brought the Fitzroy supporters to the feet with a goal that set the lead to 20 points. But Collingwood were not done yet. Herbert Pears, the man who had left the sheep shearing in the Western District and driven 40 miles in a buggy to catch the morning train at Geelong, took a strong mark and his place kick went straight through the middle. The bell went to finish the quarter and Fitzroy were in front, four goals, six, 30 points to Collingwood's two goals, four, 16. Fitzroy did have the advantage, but the game would still be decided in the last quarter. The last quarter was a willing affair with a few fights breaking out around the ground. And the bulletin reported that a police constable had to threaten arrest to break up one scuffle. Collingwood had the breeze, but as they attempted to score the 15 points they needed to win the game, Fitzroy kept making repeated efforts to keep the ball on the grandstand wing, where the prevailing wind pushed the ball into the boundary and made it difficult to get the ball into position for a scoring shot. It was not pretty football, but as far as Fitzroy supporters were concerned, it was effective. Fitzroy were displaying the better stamina, even though the Collingwood had had the benefit of a week's rest. Collingwood had their best chance when Ed Drowan was awarded a free kick, but he was only able to score one point. 
Well before flooding became part of the football jargon, the concept was on display as Fitzroy focused on defending a lead rather than scoring. As noted by Markwell in The Australasian, Nearly every man was on the ball and the proverbial pocket handkerchief would have covered the lot. The bell to finish the game finally rang. Fitzroy had not scored and Collingwood had achieved only one point. The play had not been brilliant, but the result was what the Maroons wanted. They were premiers for the second year in a row, cementing their status as the leading team in the early VFL era. In the nine years of the competition, they had played in six grand finals for four premierships, a record that compares to any of the dominant teams in later eras. Gerald Brosnan, the Fitzroy skipper, pronounced himself satisfied after the game. Interviewed by the Herald on the Monday following the big match, he felt the second quarter was their best effort, even though they scored more in the third. He also noted that the loss of Condon early in the game due to his strained knee had a severe impact on Collingwood, and his talent and skill would have helped move the ball away from the dead wing and into the centre of the ground to help attacks on the goals. But it should not be forgotten that the Maroons have lost Jim Sharp to injury as well. Charlie Panham was obviously a disappointed man. He identified the loss of Condon as a critical element to the outcome of the day. Condon could only walk with the aid of a stick after the game, which indicates how limited his movement was after quarter time. But the skipper Panham was also able to reflect that they were a good second, with the philosophy of a true sportsman. Con Hickey, the Fitzroy secretary, thought the win was based on youth against old men. He pointed out that Collingwood had men who had been playing for 10, 12 or 13 years. The dash of the 10 minutes before half-time where Fitzroy opened the game up showed the benefit of youth. They, had just, they just had more energy than their opponents. There was an unusual post-season game this year where Collingwood took on VFA Premiers Richmond two weeks after their respective grand finals. The occasion was a charity match at Victoria Park. The funds raised were for the Epileptic Colony Fund. The Woods won by 10 points after Richmond had a comeback in the last quarter. It was a taster for Richmond of the VFL level as they were going to switch competitions in a couple of years. Fitzroy had their win celebrated at a concert at the, with the Mayor and other dignitaries, congratulating the local team on their triumph amidst a program of 22 dances with excellent music. And to show how little things have changed over the years, there was a report in the Ovens and Murray Advertiser with a regular update on the happenings in Melbourne. After the grand final, it noted... It is amusing to note the pride with which each member of the Fitzroy team, which has just won the league premiership of 1905, is wearing his maroon and blue cap ornamented with its premiership badge. There is far more attention paid in Melbourne to a champion athlete than there is to many public men who have done the state much service. Over a hundred years on, and we Melburnians are still paying more attention to sporting heroes than perhaps other more deserving contributors to society but it is hard to see this changing in the next 100 years as well. The final task for 1905 was the Football Council held over the Melbourne Cup Carnival. There were representatives from all states and the North and South Islands of New Zealand. The Council wanted the game to be the leading winter game for all Australia. It was recognised that rugby had a firm hold on New South Wales and Queensland and New Zealand, and that in Western Australia, both rugby and British Association football were being played, the latter being promoted by English masters in the public schools. It was decided that each league should set aside a proportion of their funds for propaganda work, such as the VFL had done in promoting the game in Sydney schools and hosting Sydney school teams twice so far. As to the rules of the game, there was debate about what we now call kicking in danger. 
Opinion was divided at the time on the value of such a rule, which was in effect in Western Australia. The delegate from Kalgoorlie wanted to alter the scoring system to allow four points for a goal, two for hitting the post and one for a behind, but there was no support for such a change. It might have led to some different outcomes across many games if it had been agreed. The question of substitutes for injured players was raised. In South Australia, substitutes were allowed up to half-time, but the majority were against such a scheme. A 19th man would not appear until 1930 in the VFL, 25 years after this initial Australasian forum. There was also a fitting tribute to the chairman, Henry Harrison, who, with his cousin, Tom Wills, had invented Australian rules football many years earlier. The Western Australian delegate, Mr Jack Simpson, said, Mr Harrison was virtually the founder of the game, and he was like the founder of a religion or a cult who lived to see their devotees numbered in the hundreds of thousands. Join me next time as we review the 10th season of the VFL in 1906. Would Fitzroy continue on to a hat-trick of premierships? Would Collingwood redeem themselves after losing their premiership, even though they were on top of the ladder for most of the season and had, to write, and had the right to challenge for the premiership? Or would one of the other clubs make a move? And after the VFL had created the Football Council, would the Sydney push continue for another year? If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave reviews wherever you get your podcasts from. It will help others to find it. If you have any questions or want to leave feedback, please email me at info at grandfinalhistory.com.au and check out the grandfinalhistory.com.au website or our Facebook page and Twitter accounts. Thanks and I hope you join me next time.